Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And now, on with our story time. The presence of the three men seemed to rouse the dying thing, and it began to mumble without turning or raising its head. Dr. Armitage made no written record of its mouthings, but asserts confidently that nothing English was uttered. At first, the syllables defied all correlation with any speech on earth, but toward the last, there came some disjointed fragments, evidently taken from the Necronomicon, that monstrous blasphemy in quest of which the thing had perished. These fragments, as Armitage recalls them, were something gibberish, but understandable, with Yogg so thought throughout. They trailed off into nothingness, as the whippoorwills shrieked in rhythmical crescendos of unholy anticipation. Then came a halt in the gasping, and the dog raised its head in a long, lugubricious howl. A change came over the yellow, goatish face of the prostrate thing, and the great black eyes fell in appallingly. Outside the window, the shrilling of the whippoorwills had suddenly ceased, and above the murmurs of the gathering crowd, there came the sound of a panic-struck worry and fluttering. Against the moon, vast clouds of feathery watchers arose and raced from sight frantic at that which they had sought for prey. All at once, the dog started up abruptly, gave a frightened bark, and leapt nervously out of the window by which it had entered. A cry rose from the crowd, and Dr. Armitage shouted to the men outside that no one must be admitted until the police or medical examiner came. He was thankful that the windows were just too high to permit peering in, and he drew the dark curtains carefully down over each one. By this time, two policemen had arrived, and Dr. Morgan, leading them in the vestibule, was urging them for their own sakes to postpone entrance to the stench-filled reading room until the examiner came and the prostrate thing could be covered up. Meanwhile, Frightful changes were taking place on the floor. One need not describe the kind and rate of shrinkage and disintegration that occurred before the eyes of Dr. Armitage and Professor Rice, but it is permissible to say that, aside from the external appearance of face and hands, the really human element in Wilbur Wudley must have been very small. When the medical examiner came, there was only a sticky whitish mass on the painted boards, and the monstrous odor had nearly disappeared. Apparently, Watley had no skull or bony skeleton, at least, in any true or stable sense. He had taken someone after his unknown father. Yet all of this was only the prologue of the actual Dunwich horror. Formalities were gone through by bewildered officials, 
Abnormal details were duly kept from press and public, and men were sent to Dunwich and Islesbury to look up properties and notify anyone who might be heirs of the late Wilbur Wetley. They found the countryside in great agitation, both because of the growing rumblings beneath the domed hills and because of the unwanted stench and the surging, lapping sounds which came increasingly from the great empty shell formed by Wetley's boarded-up farmhouse, Earl Sawyer, who tended the horse and cattle during Wilbur's absence, had developed a woefully acute case of nerves. The officials devised excuses not to enter the noisome boarded place, and were glad to confine their survey of the deceased living quarters, the newly mended sheds, to a single visit. They filed a ponderous report at the courthouse in Islesbury, and litigations concerning airship are said to be still in progress amongst the innumerable Wutleys, decayed and undecayed, of the upper Miskatonic Valley. An almost interminable manuscript in strange characters, written in a huge ledger, and adjudged a sort of diary because of the spacing and the variations in ink and penmanship, presented a baffling puzzle to those who found it on the old bureau which served as its owner's desk. After a week of debate, it was sent to Miskatonic University, together with the deceased collection of strange books, for study and possible translation. But even the best linguists soon saw that it was not likely to be unriddled with ease. No trace of the ancient gold with which Wilbur and Old Wetley always paid their debts has yet to be discovered. It was in the dark of September 9th that the horror broke loose. The hill noises had been very pronounced during that evening, and the dogs barked frantically all night. Early risers on the tent noticed a peculiar stench in the air. About seven o'clock, Luther Brown, the hired boy at George Corey's, between Cold Spring Glen and the village, rushed frenziedly back from his morning trip to Ten Acre Meadow with the cows. He was almost convulsed with fright as he stumbled into the kitchen, and in the yard outside, a no less frightened herd were pawing and lowing pitifully, having followed the boy back in the panic they shared with him. Between gasps, Luther tried to stammer out his tale to Mrs. Corey. Up there in the road, beyond the glen, Miss Corey, there's something been there. It smells like thunder, and all the bushes and little trees is pushed back from the road, like they'd a house been moving along of it. And that ain't the worst, nother. There's prints in the road, Miss Corey. Great round prints as big as barrel heads all sunk down deep like an elephant had been along. Only they's a sight more nor four feet could make. I looked at one or two before I run, and I see everyone was covered with lines spreading out from one place, as if big palm-leaf fans, twice or three times as big as any they had, up and paraded down the road. And the smell was awful like what is around Wizard Wetley's old house. Here he faltered, 
and he seemed to shiver afresh with the fright that had sent him flying home. Mrs. Corey, unable to extract more information, began telephoning the neighbors, thus starting on its round the overture of panic that heralded the major terrors. When she got Sally Sawyer, housekeeper at Seth Bishop's, the nearest place to Wadley's, it became her turn to listen instead of transmit, for Sally's boy Chauncey, who slept poorly, had been up on the hill toward Wadley's, and had dashed back in terror after one look at the place, and at the pasturage where Mr. Bishop's cows had been left out all night. Yes, Miss Corey, came Sally's tremulous voice over the party wire. Chauncey, he just came back a-postin', and couldn't have talked, for he'd been scared. He says old Wadley's house is all blowed up, with the timbers scattered round like they'd been dynamite inside. Only the bottom floor ain't through. It is all covered with a kind of tar that smells awful, and drips down often the edges onto the ground, where the side timbers is blown away. And they's awful kinder marks in the yard, two great round marks, rounder than a hogshead, and all sticky and stuff like is blowed up in the house. Chauncey says the leads off into the meddlers, floor and great swath wider than a barn is matted down, and all the stun walls tumbled every which way, wherever it goes. And he says, says he, Miss Corey, as how he sought to look for Seth's cows, frightened as he was, and found him in the upper pasture nigh the devil's hop yard in an awful shape. Half some been clean gone, and nigh half of them that is left, suckered most dry of blood, with sores on them like they's been on Whatley's cattle ever since Laverne's boy was born. Seth, he's gone out now to look at them, though I'll vow he won't get very close to nigh Wizard Whatley's. Chauncey didn't look too careful to see what big matted down swath led to it after the pasturage. But he says he thinks it pinted up towards the glen, road, near to the village. I tell you, Miss Corey, there's something aboard that hasn't been aboard before, and I think for one that Wilbur Woodley has come to the bad end he deserved, is at the bottom of the breeding of it. He wasn't all human himself. I also says to everyone, and I think he and old Wutley must have raised something up in that nailed-up house that ain't even so human as he was. They also been unseen things around Dunwich, living things, as ain't human, ain't good for human folks. That ground was a-talkin' last night, and towards morning Chauncey, he heard the whippoorwills so loud in Cold Spring Glen he couldn't sleep and he thought he heard another faint-like sound over towards Wizard Whatley's, a kind of ripping or tearing of wood, like some big box or crate was being opened. What with this and that, he didn't get to sleep at all till sup. Ain't no sooner was he up this morning, but he's got to go over to Whatley's and see what's the matter. He sees soon enough, I tell you, Miss Corey. This done me no good. And I think as all the men folks ought to get up a party and do something, I know something awful's about. And I feel my time is nigh. 
Did your Luther take account in what them big tracks were? No. Well, Miss Corey, if they was on the Glen Road this side of the Glen, they ain't got to your house yet. I calculate they must go into the Glen itself. They would do that. I also says, Cold Glen Spring ain't no healthy nor decent place. The whippoorwills and fireflies, they never did act like they was created by God. And they's them as says, our kin, you can hear strange things rushing and a-talking in the air down there. If you stand in the right place between the rock falls and bear's den. By that noon, fully three-quarters of the men and boys of Dunwich were trooping over the roads and meadows between the new-made Watley ruins and Cold Springs Glen, examining in horror the vast monstrous prince, the maimed Bishop Kettle, the strange noisome wreck of the farmhouse, and the bruised, matted vegetation of the fields and roadsides. Whatever had burst loose upon the world had assuredly gone down into the great sinister ravine, for all the trees in the banks were bent and broken, and a great avenue had been gouged in the precipice hanging under brush. It was as though a house, launched by an avalanche, had slid down to the tangled growths of the almost vertical slope. Below, no sound came, but only a distant, undefinable feeder. And it is not to be wondered at that the men preferred to stay on the edge and argue, rather than descend and bear the unknown cyclopean horror in its lair. Three dogs that were with the party had barked furiously at first, but seemed cowed and reluctant when near the glen. Someone telephoned the news to the Aylesbury transcript, but the editor, accustomed to wild tales from Dunwich, did no more than concoct a humorous paragraph about it, an item soon afterward reproduced by the Associated Press. At night, everyone went home, and every house and barn was barricaded as stoutly as possible. Needless to say, no cattle were allowed to remain in open pasturage. About two in the morning, a frightful stench and the savage barking of the dogs awakened the household at Elmer Fry's on the eastern edge of Cold Spring Glen and all agreed that they could hear a sort of muffled swishing or lapping sound from somewhere outside. Mrs. Fry proposed telephoning the neighbors, and Elmer was about to agree when the noise of splintering wood burst in upon their deliberations. It came, apparently, from the barn, and was quickly followed by a hideous screaming and stamping amongst the cattle. The dogs slavered and crouched close to the feet of the fear-numbed family, Fry lit a lantern through force of habit, but knew it would be death to go back out into that black farmyard. The children and the women folk whimpered, kept from screaming by some obscure, vestigial instinct of defense, which told them their lives depended on silence. At last the noise of the cattle subsided to a pitiful moaning, and a great snapping, crashing, and crackling ensued. Fry's huddled together in the sitting-room, did not dare to move until the last echoes died away far down in cold spring glen. Then, 
amidst the dismal moans from the stable and the demonic piping of late whippoorwills in the glen. Selina Fry tottered to the telephone and spread what news she could of the second phase of the horror. The next day, all the countryside was in a panic, and cowed, uncommunicative groups came and went where the fiendish thing had occurred. Two titan swaths of destruction stretched from the glen to the Fry farmyard. Monstrous prints covered the bare patches of ground, and one side of the old red barn had completely caved in. Of the cattle, only a quarter could be found and identified. Some of these were in curious fragments, and all that survived had to be shot. Earl Sawyer suggested that help be asked from Islesbury or Arkham, but others maintained it would be of no use. Old Zebulon, Wutley, of a branch that hovered about halfway between soundless and decadent, made darkly wild suggestions about rites that ought to be practiced on the hilltops. He came of a line where tradition ran strong, and his memories of chantings in the great stone circles were not altogether connected with Wilbur and his grandfather. Darkness fell upon a stricken countryside too massive to organize for real defense. In a few cases, closely related families would band together and watch in the gloom under one roof. But in general, there was only a repetition of the barricading of the night before and a futile, ineffective gesture of loading muskets and setting pitchforks handily about. Nothing, however, occurred except some hill noises when the day came, there were many who hoped that the new horror had gone as swiftly as it had come. There were even bold souls who proposed an offensive expedition down into the glen, though they did not venture to set an actual example to the still reluctant majority. When night came again, the barricading was repeated, though there were less huddling together of families. In the morning, both the Fry and the Seth Bishop households reported excitement among the dogs, and vague sounds and stenches from afar, where early explorers noted with horror a fresh set of monstrous tracks in the road skirting Sentinel Hill. As before, the sides of the road showed a bruising indicative of the blasphemously stupendous bulk of the horror, whilst the confirmation of the tracks seemed to argue a passage in two directions, as if the moving mountain had come from Cold Spring Glen and returned to it along the same path. At the base of the hill, a thirty-foot swath of crushed shrubbery saplings led steeply upward, and the seekers gasped when they saw that even the most perpendicular places did not deflect the inexorable trail. Whatever the horror was, it could scale a sheer stony cliff of almost complete verticality. And as the investigators climbed around to the hill's summit by safer routes, they saw that the trail ended, or rather reversed, there. It was here that the Whatleys used to build their hellish fires and chant their hellish rituals by the table-like stone on May Eve and Hollow Mass. 
Now the very stone formed the center of a vast space, thrashed around by the mountainous horror, whilst among its slightly concave surface was a thick and fetid deposit of the same tarry stickiness observed on the floor of the ruined Whatley farmhouse when the horror escaped. Men looked at one another and muttered. Then they looked down the hill. Apparently, the horror had descended by a route much the same as that of its ascent. To spectate was futile. Reason, logic, and normal ideas and motivations stood confounded. Only old Zebulon, who was not with the group, could have done justice to the situation or suggested a possible explanation. Thursday night began much like the others, but it ended less happily. The whippoorwills in the glen had screamed with such unusual persistence that many could not sleep, and about 3 a.m. all the party telephones rang tremulously. Those who took down their receivers heard a fright-mad voice shriek out, and some thought a crashing sound followed the breaking off of the exclamation. There was nothing more. No one dared do anything, and no one knew until morning where the call came. Then those who had heard it called everyone on the line and found that only the fries did not reply. The truth appeared an hour later when a hastily assembled group of armed men trudged out to the fry place at the head of the glen. It was horrible, yet hardly a surprise. There were more swaths and monstrous prints, but there was no longer a house. It had caved in like an eggshell, and amongst the ruins, nothing living or dead could be discovered, only a stench and a tarry stickiness. The Fry family had been erased from Dunwich. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, 